Well, good morning, everyone, and it's lovely to be preaching this Valentine's Day sermon today. Now, I realise that Valentine's Day is not a thing for everyone, but in our house, strangely, this year, it certainly has been for our children. I don't know where this has come from, but perhaps it's the lockdown and them being bored, but this is what has happened. And uh, in the year when the usual go-tos for couples everywhere on Valentine's Day of romantic meals out and weekend getaways have been ruled out, in our house, that vacuum has been filled by the children. They've been planning it for weeks. Uh, And in addition to the numerous presents they appear to have somehow procured and wrapped for us, they are planning a really extravagant uh, breakfast in bed for us both. Now, I must admit, uh, I am somewhat apprehensive about all of this, partly because they don't actually normally even make their own breakfast, let alone ours. And in particular, I think I'm concerned about what might happen uh, as uh, they attempt to bring cups and glasses of coffee and orange juice up the stairs to our bedroom uh, and that they're going to end up on the carpet or on the walls or that they'll let the cat lick the food, which they seem so comfortable doing uh, with their own food. Um, All in all, I'm not quite sure what's going to happen and uh, I'm not entirely sure I'm going to enjoy it. But we'll soon see uh, whether my fears are misplaced. But certainly misplaced were my son's expectations, which he let slip a few days ago. When he happened to uh, ask me, albeit out of earshot of his mother and his sister, Daddy, can Clara and I get paid? For the breakfast in bed that we are providing for you. Now, I did try and explain that actually uh, this had been an unsolicited offer uh, to provide breakfast in bed and uh, he didn't understand that. So I tried to explain the nature of true love and what Valentine's Day is really all about. And to be honest, I wasn't entirely successful with that either. But I think we can excuse him. He is five and almost certainly hadn't heard of Valentine's Day uh, before this year. It's all rather confusing. But actually, you might have guessed from the title of today's sermon, A Sinner's Love, that it's not actually romantic love. That is my focus today uh, with this sermon either. And it's certainly not uh, about what we can get from God if we do things for him, even though that probably is where Simon the Pharisee seems to come from. Actually, it's all about the topic that lies at the heart of the thinking behind this whole sermon series, Conversations with Jesus, this term. And that is our relationship with Jesus and our Heavenly Father and what truly matters in our journey of faith. What truly matters? That is the question I'm addressing today. And as you'll hear a little bit later, it's central to what I hope and pray will be our next step together as a church. So that's where we're heading. And I believe Jesus gives us the answer to that question of what truly matters through the boldness of the woman in this passage and how he responds to it. And he did it in a way rather like the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, but but now in real life in front of him that completely turns on its head the religious assumptions of the day. It was one of those drop of the jaw moments for everyone who was there that must have left them astonished. And it should leave us astonished and have a huge impact on us too. 
for our passage couldn't feature two more different people interacting with Jesus. One is, if you like, a pillar of the establishment. Uh, Simon, he's called, verse 40, tells us when Jesus calls him that. And he was a Pharisee, which at that time wasn't a negative label like it is for us today, but actually um, indicated someone who was part of the religious in crowd who who set the popular uh, religious opinion of the day and and also perhaps unhelpfully policed uh, the religious practice of the devout. And so Jesus, with his self-evident authority and willingness to speak uh, his mind, uh, whatever the consequences, was clearly a threat. And that's the context in which Simon invites him for dinner. And it's possible he could be like Nicodemus that we looked at five weeks ago, um, who genuinely is open and wanting to know more. Perhaps more likely he's got uh, less uh, virtuous motives, perhaps looking to trap, influence or control Jesus in some way, as many other Pharisees will more explicitly try to do later. Either way, though, it's a high profile and actually a public event, which is quite surprising for us in our culture. But actually, uh, it's a public dinner, which means the woman in the story can turn up uninvited and not be thrown out, uh, which might be what we would otherwise have expected to have happened to her. All of which presented the woman in the story with the, an opportunity that it seems she so desperately sought. Now, what we know of her is she was well known locally, but not in a good way. Luke tells us she'd lived a sinful life in that town, which was probably a euphemism for a prostitute and certainly not someone uh, that they would expect a rabbi to want to associate with. And it's for that reason that this is a guilt edged opportunity for her, but also an enormous risk. There was no chance really that she'd be able to invite Jesus to her house if she even had one. Uh, there was also probably no other opportunity where she could get anywhere near him. But now if she was courageous at this dinner party, she could get to him and possibly could do so without anyone stopping her at all. But how would he respond? That was the risk that she took. And it's here that I think we have to applaud her for her boldness and her faith. She, it seems, knew enough about Jesus's character and his identity to be confident about what his response would be. And everyone else seems to have been astonished, don't they, at the end of the story when he forgives her. But she wasn't. She's seen and heard enough to know that he has the authority, the love and the mercy to forgive her, accept her and affirm her as his own. And she doesn't just act with boldness and faith. She does so uh, with generosity as well, huge generosity in what she pours upon his feet. Now, we know the temptation, of course, uh, is to throw money at our closest relationships. It's a real one, especially for men, I think. And whether it's flowers for the wife or expensive presents for our children, uh, we're vulnerable to it when actually it might be and probably is the greater gift of conversation and affection that those precious relationships most need. But that's not what's going on here. She's not throwing money at Jesus. Rather, this is a natural and heartfelt expression of her repentance and love and we know that because of how Jesus responds to her he can read everyone's hearts and his verdict is clear as he groups together all her acts of devotion 
as evidence of what lies beneath, saying this, Do you see this woman? You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. For a woman who was considered beyond the pale by so many, we can only imagine the relief, the joy and the sense of value and worth that she must have felt. The verdict on Simon, though, is far less complimentary. His hospitality and his heart response is ex exposed as perfunctory at best, reflecting an attitude not of openness and humility, which is what he needed towards Jesus, but of judgmentalism and pride. For ultimately, what truly matters, Jesus tells us, is love. Love for the Father and love for the Son. And on the test of the latter and the test of the greatest commandment, Simon, in failing to love Jesus, God's Son, had dismally failed. So that's the story. That's what happened at that dinner party 2,000 years ago. And now as we begin to apply it, I want to begin by acknowledging two things about where we may well be at. In fact, probably are at this morning, albeit unconsciously. And the first is that many of us, and this is a nationwide trend, are struggling with apathy, passivity or fear brought on by the pandemic primarily. And I've been in several meetings recently in which this has been talked about. And um, if we don't address them, then when we come to move out of the lockdown, these things will really hinder us as individuals and as a church. And that's something we're really thinking about in the church leadership at the moment. And second, again, probably not consciously, an issue for us all, or most of us anyway, is we're lacking intimacy with Jesus and our Heavenly Father. Again, probably brought on by the pandemic as well. Maybe we found ourselves struggling without that experience of church as we knew it and the ability to see other Christians and the enormous encouragement that that brings. And we're without that at the moment. And maybe we've slipped into that sort of workspace, dutiful but dry faith, which the Pharisees actually epitomised. Uh, which by ignoring the key aspect of our relationship with Jesus and our Heavenly Father actually leaves us empty and cold. It's so easy to slip into that. I certainly recognise it in my life. And I encourage you to be honest about your own as well. So that's where we might be at. How do we deal with these things then? Well, let me address the issue of passivity, fear and apathy first. And at this stage, I just want to give a, a hint of an answer, but with the promise of more help to come. And the good news is that God can break through and can restore and revive us uh, through those things. He can bring us back to the confidence and the energy and the passion and the focus that we once felt, especially pre-pandemic. And of course, by asking him, if we haven't already done so, that can be the best uh, starting point, And that might be enough. But for others, more help may be needed. And so in the summer term, what we're planning at this stage, once things have opened up a bit and we're allowed to, is to do some Sunday teaching on this. 
followed hopefully by a midweek seminar or two when we'll teach in more depth and specifically offer uh, things like prayer ministry and listening and discussion and, and questions and answers as well to help us uh, really move on past these things and get our confidence and our passion back. COVID recovery for this nation, but also for us as individuals, isn't just about a physical and a financial restoration and healing. It's also about mental and, and um, emotional recovery as well. And as Christians, we've got to add spiritual recovery too. That's the help that is to come. And we'll take that forward when we're able to. So watch this space. But I want to focus on that second reality now, that lack of intimacy that we may well be struggling with, in which I certainly have been myself at times. And I think for all of us, part of the answer at least has to be learning the lesson which the woman in the story truly understood, but which Simon, this upstanding, but proud and hard-hearted individual truly didn't. And that's our own brokenness and sin. For we face, or many of us face anyway, the danger that Simon faced, which is as someone with a, you know, many years of, of religious um, devotion of sorts, many years of living a conventional Christian life, maybe with a Christian background as well, is we don't have this woman's story. We don't have the more obviously sinful past, or at least not in that same colourful way. We don't have uh, such a life of separation from God or turning away from him uh, that we feel simply that overwhelming relief and joy still at having been rescued from it. That's not to say that we deny the reality that we are sinners or that we deny the reality that we were separated from him, but we just don't feel that relief in the way that she did and some people uh, who become Christians do today. Jesus is honest about that and we need to be as well. But what's the response? It's not to be defeatist and to say, well, that, that's that then. There's nothing I can do about it. I am who I am with the history that I've got. Rather, it's to acknowledge that actually when we look at others around us, those who are close to God, those who have a, an intimate relationship with Jesus, the reality is that they've experienced the closer that they've drawn to God, the more they've they've pursued him the more that they've come to realize how far away from his standards that they really are the more we realize that in reality despite our religious observance we actually deserve nothing it's not enough however hard we may have tried we still fall short of his glory and his standards time and time again not just in what we do but in the things that we fail to do the things that we fail to say and fail to think not just the sins of commission but the sins of omission as well they're all part of what it looks like actually to not be the people living the lives fully that God has made us to be and the bottom line is this and the closer that we seek to become the more we realize this as we look at God's character as we read his word as we spend time with him and as we worship him we realize that God is God God is holy and we most definitely are not but we don't do that to demoralize us 
we do that to rediscover, to re-experience the reality of who we are and our brokenness and our sinfulness. And so be moved afresh emotionally, deeply by that sense of joy at having been rescued from it. That sense of having been redeemed, having been brought near by a holy God who otherwise, if it wasn't for Jesus, we would have no right and no opportunity to be in friendship with and no prospect of one day being with in heaven forever. So Christian meditation has always been meditating on these things, meditating on the cross, the reasons for the cross, the reality of the cross and the relief of the cross and what it brought and finishing with gratitude because of what it achieved and because of the love that lay behind it that means we really do have everything we will ever need. Now that's the general answer, that's the answer that the gospel has always given but let me now share with you a more specific opportunity that we've got uh, this Wednesday and then for the whole time of Lent together as a church. So on Wednesday as you will have seen in my email last week we've got an Ash Wednesday service at 7.30 on Zoom and you'll see the details there of how to join. Please do come. Let's make this something that we do together as a church and it'd be fun to to do a Zoom service for the first time as well and see how that works. And then for the duration of Lent, I really encourage us all to take part in that daily devotional journey that I wrote about as well. Downloading that Live Lent app, which is really good and really helpful, or picking up the booklet, which is uh, covering the same things. And you can get that from the church office or arrange for it to be sent to you uh, instead. And invest this Lent in your relationship with Jesus and seek to grow closer to him as he has called us all to. Then there's optional life group material if you want to sort of process this further together in your group. Um, and there's also stuff that as a family you can share with your children so that it can be a journey of growing closer to Jesus that we we do together as well. And that's a wonderful thing. So it's a great opportunity. Will you take it? Will you join us? And will you seek to respond to what truly matters in this life, which is our relationship with our Heavenly Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. My time has gone, so let me finish with this. Will you start by entering today then into that place of worship and surrender and commitment that the woman in this story models to us and which is the best possible starting point today? And that's about acknowledging what really matters is taking that step back to him. Of saying enough is enough. I don't want to drift any longer. I don't want to stay distant. I don't want to stay fearful, passive, apathetic. I want to come back. I want to take this step today of saying, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, receive me. Jesus, I worship you. And I want to follow you with every fibre of my being again today.
So we're going to sing a song or we're going to have the opportunity at least to listen to a song which Saskia is going to sing and you'll know it, but it's particularly fitting for this moment today. A song that recognises that when it comes down to it, to the basics, in simplicity we need to come back to Jesus. Just lay it all down in front of him. Choose to worship him and choose to allow his forgiveness and his transforming power to change us afresh. So I'm going to pray for us now just to prepare us for that song. And then I invite you to respond as you see fit as Saskia sings those words over us now. So let's pray. Father, thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for calling us back to yourself. Thank you that you accept us despite all that we have done and all that we have failed to do. Lord, might you move us today afresh with that sense of your love, with that sense of your forgiveness. And with that sense of confidence that you can transform us and grow us again. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.